If you will, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. And the title of our sermon this morning is Ordinary Christians. And our key words for our worshipers in training are mundane, radical, and daily. Now, as I've been thinking this week, I've decided that there's probably not a very big market for bumper stickers that say, my child is ordinary. And then I thought about most people when we ask about their hopes and their dreams, you don't often hear the response, I want my life to be mundane and practical and predictable. Most little league coaches don't gather their team around and motivate them by saying, we're going to try really hard this season to be somewhere in the middle of the league standings. The director, the conductor of a symphony doesn't gather everyone around and say, let's give them a mediocre show tonight. Paying bills, cleaning up dog vomit off the carpet, going to work at 6 a.m., mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, doing your taxes, putting gas in the car, finishing homework, pricing out health insurance, exercising, if you do that, finalizing a spreadsheet for your boss, washing dishes, changing diapers. Most of these are probably not the most riveting experiences of our day-to-day lives, but they are necessary. And they're what's taking up a considerable amount of our daily lives. In a 2013 study, it was found that those who work 40 hours per week on average spend an additional 20.3 hours a week on general household duties to include general chores of maintenance and upkeep like dishes and laundry and all sorts of other necessities. Include with this an average of 9.7 hours per week of eating and 60.62 hours of sleeping. Our lives are pretty routine, mundane, predictable, regular, typical, ordinary. These are our lives. And yet we tend to live each day with this burning sensation that in some way we're supposed to do something different, that maybe there's something different for us, that maybe God has something more extraordinary, more daring, more edgy, more dangerous, more in the spotlight, more world-changing. But maybe that feeling we have, that that urge, that sensation, maybe it's not from God at all. Maybe it's a discontented heart. And it's coupled with this cultural drive to be bigger and better and faster and stronger, to go further and to go higher. With all the talk in our day of following our dreams, doing what feels right, and nobody being able to tell us that we can't do something, we just need to set our hearts to it and not give up. 
Who wants to talk about being content in our circumstances and being ordinary Christians with ordinary lives? I mean, shouldn't we be finding the most dangerous neighborhoods and moving there to live? Shouldn't we be trying to adopt as many children from Rwanda as we're able to do on less than $25,000 a year? Is that what the Christian life is all about? Michael Horton writes, who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, and make a difference. We need to be radical disciples, taking our faith to a whole new level. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. Well, let me be honest up front. I am a recovering revolutionary. So in all of this, I speak from experience. With the right amount of pride and money and people who will tell you what you want to hear, it's easy to think that a man with a mission can change the world with a Bible and an iPad. But somewhere along the journey, life happens. The job gets more time-consuming. Children come along. Bills need to get paid. And as much as I wish it would, the grass will not stop growing. My hope for us in the next few weeks is to get us thinking more and more about what the Bible says about what God really wants from us as his people. We're going to take eight weeks to consider the ordinary Christian life. What it looks like, how God has designed it. And hopefully in the end we'll be convinced from God's word that ordinary is quite beautiful. That ordinary... Daily life as a Christian takes a great deal of courage. You know, giving up a year of our lives to live among the homeless might seem thrilling and it might seem very spiritual. But it's a lot more difficult to be a good steward of what God has given you and to interact rightly with the people in your own home. We need courage not to give everything up and to go join a commune, but to be kind to our spouse on an average Wednesday morning. We need courage and conviction to call our mothers back when we don't feel like it, to patiently answer the 10,000 why questions from a four-year-old on the car ride to the grocery store. This is ordinary life, and it's, it's messy, and it's beautiful, and it takes courage, and it takes perseverance. These are the things God calls us to. Today we're going to spend time in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 12 as we think about what it means to be ordinary Christians. So let's begin in chapter 12 in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. Now, some of the things we're going to look at today, we're only going to address briefly because we will deal with them in greater detail in the weeks ahead. And this is one of those areas. But there is a foundational principle here in these two verses that we need to take hold of. Paul is laying for us some groundwork of what he's about to say. Now, up to this point, he has written in the book of Romans 11 marvelous chapters of truth in which he presents the law of God as this unyielding standard of perfection to which no man can attain to because of our sinful condition, our suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. And then he gets into chapter 3 and lays out the gospel and its, and its implications for Jews and Gentiles. And he's unfolding this astonishing plan of God's salvation for mankind. He deals with the reality of the Christian life and that we can live as those dead to sin and alive to Christ, walking in Christ's righteousness. And he ends his discussion about the gospel in chapter 11, and he has this tremendous doxology, this wonderful praise in, at the end of 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things Glory be to him forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul is moved to this glorious praise of God as he's thought about the law of God and our inability to uphold the law of God and what God has accomplished in Christ to redeem us, to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And then in chapter 12, he begins to outline for us what all of this means in the Christian life. He's brought his readers along. You hated God. You rebelled against God. You suppressed the truth. You rejected him. Even though you knew him, you were dead. But God in his infinite love and mercy, while we were yet sinners, we were enemies of God, sent Jesus in the world to take on flesh to fulfill the law we were incapable of fulfilling, to die the death we were most certainly deserving, and to conquer the grave that is most rightfully ours. And in God's wisdom, he made it possible for us to have the righteousness that is Christ to be credited to us by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. We cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, But God has made a way in Jesus Christ. And so now you are Christians. And Paul begins to say in chapter 12, this then is how we ought to live. In light of all of this, this is how we live as Christians. You were a sinful hater of God, but he saved you anyway. Now what? And the rest of Romans turns to that issue. This is Paul outlining what God wants from us as his people. So he gave us the law, he showed us our sinfulness, and then he gives us the gospel as the remedy of sin. And now he's back to the law as a rule of life, a rule of godliness for the Christian, the way that we ought to live, to walk as the people of God. 
So Paul begins here in verse 1 by calling us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And he follows this admonition with a whole series of imperatives. He gives us commands that show us what it means to live as Christians. In light of what Christ has accomplished, in light of what he has done, we are to live certain kinds of lives. And it begins in verse 2 with the renewal of our minds, that we are transformed, that we may test and discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we are not instead conformed to the world and all of its ways. And we're going to spend an entire sermon in a few weeks on the ordinary means by which God works to renew our minds. But at the very least, we must be settled on the reality that our minds are renewed and our hearts are transformed by the regular intake of God's word, that we have regular communion with God. And in the regular gathering with God's people, that we might have communion with one another. That's where iron sharpens iron and accountability takes place. And we have to deal with challenges that force us to deal with relationships and where we're given growth that only comes through mutual encouragement and accountability and wisdom that is shared in gospel community. So transformation comes through renewal and renewal comes through ordinary communion with God and his people. And if you're a Christian and if you've sought for any length of time to maintain sweet, satisfying communion with God, And with his people, you recognize that it takes effort. You recognize it can sometimes be difficult. It can be painful. But Paul goes on to give us direction on how to do this. How do we walk in these seemingly mundane things in a way that is transformative in the life of a Christian? Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Now when problems arise in our relationships or when you don't get the thing you want out of an interaction or when your preferences aren't met, what is the easiest thing for us to do? And what is probably the most prevalent thing we think to do? To run away. To set it down, to cut it off, and to run away. And that happens a lot in life. We see it frequently. But a Christian who is striving to be faithful with a renewed mind is going to think differently. We should begin remembering who God is 
and who we are. And if we know who God is, it's not difficult to get a more accurate sense of who we are, to understand the true state of affairs, realizing we cannot accomplish anything of significance in this world apart from God's grace. And this understanding, this realization serves as an agent of humility. And that's the key to all that Paul's going to give us. Humility. We should be humbled when we consider who God is, what God has done for us, what Christ has accomplished and given to us. And so Paul begins in verse 3 expressing humility himself, for by the grace given to me. And this is the very thing we all have to realize. We can't accomplish anything of significance apart from grace given to us. And I assure you, your broken relationships, your angry outbursts, your, your difficult interactions, your disdain for those who don't meet your preferences, your inability to reconcile, your tendencies to run away, it all comes down to this, a lack of humility. And where does a lack of humility come from? It comes from a lack of communion with God. And so Paul illustrates for us in his assessment of his own circumstances, apart from the grace of God, I am nothing. But by the grace given to us, we're able to think of ourselves as we ought, not highly, not pridefully, not in a way in which we demand in return all others put themselves in our debt, but rather in humility. We must think of ourselves soberly, accurately. What does that mean? It means that while I recognize my sin and the ways in which I'm driven by pride and self-serving, self-righteous motives, I still have worth and I still have value. I'm still an image bearer of God. It's very difficult for us to make sober evaluations of ourselves. We tend to judge ourselves with rose-colored glasses one day, and then the next, we have a very cynical eye. We excuse ourselves one day, and we're too harsh on ourselves the next. So when it comes to our role within the church as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, members of his body, we have a tendency to either think ourselves too important to the body of Christ or not important enough. But Paul seeks to correct both errors here. We are one body, and as one body, there are many members, and those members function differently. In other words, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you have a function, you have a role to play. You fulfill a particular need. We have gifts, and those gifts are to be used for the body of Christ. Not one of us is complete in ourselves and able to accomplish it all. We need the gifts God gives to each of us for the body. And because of that, we hope that not only ourselves, but everyone else is making sober evaluations of themselves. And when we see this going on, when we are evaluating our lives and constantly looking to Christ, seeking to know how our gifts can be utilized... When others are doing the same thing alongside us, we start to become contributors to the whole body. We start in service to one another. We move from being less and less effective to being more and more of a church, 
a church in which the gates of hell will not prevail against, where the humility and grace and peace and patience and love and mercy and perseverance of Christ dwells in our midst. That's who we're to be. And this is another area we're going to spend time on in a few weeks. But I wonder if you've ever considered, what are the ways that God has gifted me to be an effective member of the body of Christ? Am I doing what I'm called to do as a member of the body to ensure that the body stays healthy? It functions according to its purpose. Here's my point in all of this. Being an aortic valve or a medulla oblongata may not be glamorous, And it certainly won't make front page news, but it's vital and it's critical to survival and health in the body. You see, authentic Christian living isn't found in altering the body to make it something that it's not. Authentic Christian living is functioning as a part of the body and the part of the body that God has created you to be, which in turn will make the church to be what it is supposed to be. And notice the language Paul uses in verses 6 through 8. He's emphasizing the importance of the gifts within the body. A sort of statement of whatever you're called to do, whatever it is, do it to the best of your ability. Don't be ho-hum, don't hold back. Utilize your gifts to strengthen and prosper the body of Christ. Are you called to be a thumb? Be the best thumb that you can be and the body will be better for it. Are thumbs pretty ordinary? Absolutely. Am I thankful I have them? Yes. And I hope you're you're seeing that this call to be ordinary Christians is not throwing a blanket, a wet blanket on godly passion and noble pursuits for the kingdom of God, but rather it's an encouragement for all of us to orient our lives and our habits in such a way that we're growing deeper with God. We're growing deeper with one another in grace. And in doing so, we'll be more effective in outreach. We'll have a more sustainable vision of loving service to others over a lifetime together. This is not a cop-out for mediocrity. It's not a call of low expectations and failures and passivity. It's quite different from all of that. It's, it's a call to sustainability in our discipleship. Not just through our individual lives, but through the generations to come within the local church. It's not a call to do less, but a call to invest heavily in the things that we often give up on when we don't see an immediate return. When we see things that seem to be mundane, it's not getting enough attention. It's not exciting enough. I mean, just, just think about if, if the church were to take these eight verses that we've looked at in Romans 12, if we humbled ourselves in sober judgment and committed ourselves to fulfilling our calling as individual members of the body of Christ, utilizing what God has given us to strengthen and encourage and nourish and serve the church, imagine what we would be. Imagine what we would accomplish as God's people. And it doesn't take a certain number of hours in a soup kitchen or a certain number of clothes donated to charity. It takes sustained faithfulness. Day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, faithfully walking together 
with God. What else does it look like? Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, now Paul is sort of on a roll. He, he begins to list off various characteristics of the Christian life. And he's dealing with all of these in the context of the local church. He begins with this. He says, let love be genuine. Another way to translate that is, let love be without hypocrisy. Our love for one another must not be hypocritical. It must be genuine and authentic. So what does it look like to a watching world when we have a greater concern for sponsoring orphans in third world countries through parachurch organizations, but we have disunity and division in the local church? Genuine love extended, not just to those we can love from a distance, but especially to those we are called to live daily life with, day by day, communing as the people of God to grow together in the fellowship of the saints, stirring one another up to greater love and good deeds. But this genuine love is pervasive. It touches every aspect of our lives. So tomorrow night, when you're, when you're standing, well, I guess Tuesday, tomorrow's a holiday. Tuesday night, when you're standing at your sink, scraping cooked-on food off the pan, You have to be confident that what God promises for you in the future will come to pass. And what you're doing right now actually matters. It matters. That's faith. So instead of grieving over what you perceive to be inadequacies because you decided to get married and have a family, instead of running an orphanage in Mozambique and adopting 20 children of your own, You can instead serve joyfully because you're fulfilling a calling to serve the family that God has given to you as a gift. And throughout the day, you can praise God. You can praise him that you're able to restrain your evil tongue from making a snide remark when your your spouse doesn't follow through with something they agreed to. You can stay calm and patient when your child spills their entire meal on the floor. When you're able to suffer a wrong because your irate boss blamed you for an error that your coworker made. That's faith working through love. And in so many ways, that is so much more difficult than living life on the edge. It takes courage, it takes patience, it takes a daily renewal of our minds, it takes perseverance. The problem isn't that we're energetically pursuing kingdom things. It's that we've done it through a handful of quick sprints instead of sustaining our stride through a lengthy marathon. Energy is good and important, but if it's not rightly utilized, we burn out and it results in anxieties and unrealistic expectations. 
We tend to grow impatient with the familiar, don't we? Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes the mostly imperceptible aspects of life, we grow impatient. But this is life as a Christian. It requires something of us that when we're honest, it's as, it's, it's, it isn't as easy as waking up in the morning. Let your love be genuine. That's something that takes courage and perseverance and a renewed mind. Paul says to love genuinely, and he also gives us a command to hate. If we truly love people, we will hate the evil that is done because it destroys them, it destroys all of those around them. He says abhor or hate what is evil. How do we do that? Well, he says to hold fast or to cling to that which is good. Well, the opposite of clinging is rejecting, hurling something far away from us. So the picture we get from Paul here is that we, we're to hurl away all of the evil with all of our might to get it far away from us, to rid our lives of it, to distance ourselves from it as we cling to what is good. As Christians, our primary and greatest pursuit shouldn't be after the next best thing. It should be after satisfying communion with God through the means that he's provided. And in pursuit of that, we strive in godliness and holiness. As we walk with God, day by day, we're made more and more aware of our sin so that we can abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good. Now this talk, this pursuit of holiness it's a bit passe in our day. It's not to God. It's what God calls us to. You see this picture Paul is painting for us? It's a bit painful. It can be painful if we filter our lives through this. Genuine love and faithfulness in a pursuit of holiness. That can be tough. And when we live in everyday community with one another, these things can't be faked. The more we walk with one another, the more we pursue everyday Christian life together, the more all of our garbage comes out. So what are we going to do? Immerse ourselves in a whirlwind of activity to escape reality? Or are we going to actually submit ourselves to the word of God and be motivated by grace and thankfulness because we have union with Christ? It's easy. We can open our Bibles and read and recognize that indeed God does care a great deal for those who are disenfranchised, for those who are impoverished and oppressed, the underdogs of society. But if our reading of the Bible makes Jesus to sound more like a radical socialist, then it does that he is calling us to live a rigorous, genuine love and fervent pursuit of holiness with one another, then we have the wrong priorities. We've read it wrong. We've gotten it wrong. We can pursue holiness and we can have a genuine love in turn that takes up a concern for those who are disenfranchised and impoverished and oppressed, but we cannot take up a concern for all of those that in hope one day we'll find our way into communion with God. 
Now, one of those ways sounds a whole lot more attractive. Externally, it probably looks a lot better. But the biblical way looks rather ordinary. It's not lukewarm. The ordinary Christian will always fight the status quo of being lukewarm. It's, it's not nominal. It doesn't lack in passion or action. Whatever we do, wherever we live, whatever our income, whatever our vocation and our education, whatever we do in retirement, whatever we drive, whatever we eat or drink, we are called to do it all to the glory of God as ordinary followers and proclaimers of Jesus Christ on mission to make disciples of all nations in whatever place God has called us to live and to serve with the gifts that he has given us for the good of the body, with renewed minds, with humility, striving with God's people to fulfill our calling with genuine love in a pursuit of holiness. In verse 10, Paul said we are to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. If I'm devoted to you, I I care about you. I care about your well-being. I'll seek to apply myself to your needs. I want to sacrifice my comfort and my, my privileges in order to help you. Practically, Paul writes, honor one another above yourselves. Brothers and sisters, are we putting ourselves below one another? Do I think of myself less than I think of you, that I might genuinely love you and serve you? Now, each of us loves to be honored. We have a tendency often, though, to envy others when honor comes to them. But Paul strikes at all of this. He tells us, test to our devotion is whether we really rejoice when others are honored. And it goes beyond our attitudes. He intends for us to actively pursue means, ways and means to bestow honor onto others. It's sort of reminiscent of God's law, honor your father and mother. Thinking well of them is not the same thing as rising up at the city gates to call them blessed. It takes an active work. Do you rejoice when others are honored? Or do you have a hidden resentment in your heart? Even more to the point, do you take delight in praising others rightly? When's the last time you went to someone close to you and told them that they've accomplished a job well done? These are incredibly ordinary things. But how much are they at work in our lives, in our relationships? How much are they at work in our church? In verse 11, Paul sort of answers a question for us about all we've been talking about this morning. Does all of this mean that we're lazy, that we just sit back, we just kind of let Christianity happen? By no means. Look, again, he writes, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You want to spend a month in Nigeria serving a small community with the gifts God has given to you? If so, I'm glad that you do. I do too, and soon I will again. But look, most of my life is not spent in Nigeria doing ministry. It's spent right here with my wife and kids, paying the bills, mowing the lawn, putting gas in the cars, cooking, eating, counseling, writing, studying, going to meetings, playing golf, reading, sleeping... This is life. 
getting up each morning to do it all over again. Do you want to feed the homeless and provide clothes for those without? Praise God. I'm thankful for such pursuits. But if you're not equally as dedicated to working hard at your job and fulfilling your calling in your home, you've set aside the ordinary important for extraordinary externalism. And it garners attention and praise, but it doesn't do much to renew our minds that our love might be genuine, full of brotherly affection, in a fervent pursuit of holiness. In many ways, it's a whole lot more fun to be part of movements and activities and trips than it is to be part of a church. We can express our own individuality. We can pick our favorite leaders. We can be swept off our feet at conferences. We can be anonymous. Sure, we may be encouraged by like-minded believers, but we're not bound up with them that we would be compelled to bear their burdens, to love them with brotherly affection, to suffer their rebukes. But this mentality keeps us restless. It, It makes ordinary life in submission to an actual church seem intolerably confining. It's not exciting enough. It's not edgy enough. It doesn't fire me up enough. But when that is the sum and substance of what we're looking for in the Christian life, we're stepping over God's activity in ordinary, everyday ways. I'm not trying to throw a wrench in the conversations about various ways of being creative and active for the kingdom of God. But our goal is to add a few cautions. I myself needed to hear these cautions years ago. and God's shaping and refining me now too. Here's the deal. It doesn't doesn't get a whole lot more ordinary than we see here in Romans 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. You see, it's not a new program for personal growth. It's not a new form of worship. It's not social reengineering. It's not building monastic communities of poverty and veganism. It's recognizing that the richest and most fulfilling places of both God's activity and ours isn't generally in the Kodak moments and the stories that get us in Time Magazine and National Geographic The richest and most fulfilling parts of life with God are in the unplanned, normal, everyday things of life. The times when our kids' nicknames are invented, our drives home in the car from church include questions where one more piece of the puzzle is put into place into their little minds. It's in the decisions and conversations we have in marriage It's in Sunday school discussions. It's sipping coffee together at a Bible study. It's meeting up with one another to talk about life. Day by day, these little moments are adding up to grow us into faithful, ordinary Christians. And that's what God wants us to be. That doesn't mean we don't engage in missions and evangelism. But it means that missions and evangelism don't necessarily include all of us flying to the other side of the world. For some, 
It does mean that, but not for everybody. Not for most of us. For most of us, it's realizing that, well, you may not be called to reach the unreached people groups of the world with the gospel, that as a Christian, you are on mission every morning when you roll out of bed. And you know what? To me, that seems a whole lot more difficult because it requires us doing it in all the ways that Paul has outlined for us this morning to the glory of God. Another quote from Michael Horton, he says, ordinary does not mean mediocre. Athletes, architects, humanitarians, and artists can vouch for the importance of everyday faithfulness to mundane tasks that lead to excellence. But even if we are not headliners in our various callings, it is enough to know that we are called there by God to maintain a faithful presence in his world. We look up in faith toward God and out toward our neighbors in love and good works. You don't have to transform the world to be a faithful mom or dad, a sibling, a church member, or a neighbor. And who knows? Maybe if we discover the opportunities of the ordinary, a fondness for the familiar, and a wonder for the mundane, we might end up being radical after all. Brothers and sisters, our prayer is that through this journey that we will discover the beauty of the ordinary in life with God, to deepen our communion with him, to deepen our communion with one another, to show us that a life lived in faithfulness is a life that pleases and glorifies God. And through it all that the world would see our faithfulness and the ordinary lives that we live to the glory of God. And that those who are far from Christ would look and see the sweetness of our fellowship, the joy of our hearts, the gladness of the body of Christ because we're living upon Christ's righteousness and not our own. And so for those of you who come this morning without Christ, I plead with you to come and see the beauty of life with God that we can live our lives day by day with meaning and purpose because Christ has given himself for those who cry out to him. Will you cry out to him this morning? Will you ask him to give you ordinary life with him and with us together? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful We're thankful that you remind us in your word that when you transform us into new creations and day by day work through your means to renew our minds, that what you call us to is practical, is real, is transformative. And yet we recognize it is also very difficult. It can be trying. It can be grating at times. But you are giving us the means to greater communion with you and with your people. And as we walk in these things, oh God, I pray. I pray that you would help us to recognize that we are not sins. We, we, we are not slaves to the sins of the flesh. 
but that we are slaves of Christ. That as we live in obedience to Christ, that we have the opportunity, we have the ability to not sin, but to walk faithfully. That's what we want to be, oh God, faithful Christians. Faithful, obedient Christians who love one another with brotherly affection, who abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, renewing our minds day by day, striving and working as members of the body of Christ with a fervent pursuit of holiness and godliness, that in us you would be glorified, that we would be brought to enjoy the abundant goodness that you provide for us and that we collectively together can rest and dwell in the righteousness of Christ. Father, would you help us to walk in these things as individuals, as families, and as a church for your namesake and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.